My name is Dr. David Chow, director of the Asian American Program. We have my good friend and colleague, uh, Professor Melissa Borja, who's a professor of history at the University of Michigan, and my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Tran, who's a professor of religion at Baylor University. Uh, both Jonathan and Melissa will be uh, speakers at the Lived Theology in Asian America Conference at Princeton Theological Seminary coming up soon in a couple of weeks. So Jonathan and Melissa, we were just talking about the tensions between various Asian ethnic groups. And it made me just think about this category, this artificial category called Asian America, which is part of the title of the conference. Is this category of Asian America, is it ultimately helpful? Is it coherent? Is it unhelpful? Um, we were just talking about the conflicts between the U.S. use of Korean soldiers against the Vietnamese and how in the Asian context, there are many versions of these uh, intra-Asian colonial imperial battles. And yet on U.S. soil, somehow Koreans, Vietnamese, Filipinos, Chinese, Japanese were all supposed to be represented, described under this category of Asian American. And so just kind of thinking about the setup of the, the conference, we're using this category called Asian America. We're talking about Asian American identity. How helpful is it? What are some of the tensions within it? I'm just curious. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I have so many thoughts about this. Yeah, I, I think we always need to remember that Asian American as a category was supposed to be a political coalition for political purposes. Yeah. And one thing that I think we forget now is that it was initially a coalition for political purposes and not just an inherent identity. So I think we should continue to approach the category of Asian American with an eye to what work it can do for us yeah. rather than as something that is that just exists naturally in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it, it's good to be intentional in how we use it and intentional with an I do how it can serve us. Yeah. But I continue to be really intrigued by some of the conversations that have emerged after Atlanta about how some groups within Asian America feel uh, excluded as a part, uh, when we talk about what it means to be Asian American. So this has come up a lot in conversations about adoptees, Asian adoptees raised by white families. And, and they're really struggling in this time because they might not have been raised in families, given tools to talk about being Asian American and how to um, deal with anti-Asian racism. So that's a very specific need at this moment. But those people, um, I think, are not often considered or their experiences are not often considered when we talk about Asian American experiences. And I think that we could probably do a better job by we, I mean, people who might use the term Asian American to, to identify themselves, do a better job of being aware of how uh, some some stories are centered more than others and privileged more than others. Mm -hmm. um, and being aware that, you know, Asian adoptees are part of the Asian American story and their stories are just as important. Their experiences and needs are just as important. So, and I would also add, <laughs> I always say, joke that, when I went away to college, uh, I met Asian American people in large number. 
and I grew up in mid-Michigan. There were not a ton of Asian American people there. And so it was very interesting for me to go to college and meet all these people who'd grown up in California or New Jersey or New York. And they had a very particular idea of what it meant to be Asian American. And one person said, Melissa, you're not actually Asian American because you're from the Midwest. You're basically white. Oh, wow. To which I said, why do you get to decide who gets to be Asian American? Why, why does your particular experience as a Chinese American person from an upper middle class in New Jersey, why does that get to define what it means to be Asian American? Why is my experience as a ranch dressing, loving Midwesterner, why is that not legitimately Asian American? Ranch dressing, this friendship is over if either of you malign ranch dressing. My son dips his Domino's pizza in ranch dressing. I mean, (laughs) uh, I believe Melissa refers to all soft drinks as pop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's a really great question, right? Because it's not simply what counts as Asian American. And this goes to Melissa's point about whether we're going to imagine these identities in terms of essential identities yeah. or ra- what I would call pragmatic ones yeah. or pragmatic political ones. So a lot of people wouldn't co- consider me Vietnamese. Uh, now I'm Vietnamese, I'm Vietnamese American, but they a lot of uh, Vietnamese folks would not consider me Vietnamese for the simple reason that I don't speak Vietnamese fluently. Um, right. For a lot of Vietnamese, like you'll probably not meet someone in their mid forties who does not speak Vietnamese. Uh, my mom, uh, was raised in a pretty wealthy family from the North. So they, they all spoke English, French, uh, and Vietnamese. And so when we came to America, I was only two. She automatically spoke to me in in English. So I Mm. never, and we weren't, we didn't come over with, um, my father. So if you don't have that nuclear family dynamic where people speak the language, it's really hard for the the younger kids to grow up speaking the language. So, but a lot of Vietnamese people wouldn't consider me Vietnamese. So you, you might ask the question, what counts as Vietnamese? It's very similar to, right. Um, Melissa's freshman friends saying, you're not, you're not quite um, Asian American because you grew up in the Midwest. So what counts as, you know, according to that metric, what counts as Asian American, you grew up in LA, um, so, so as much as we can remember that these are pragmatic political identities, we claim them where we need to. Um, but once we begin to make, begin making these essentializing moves, the political power that we're uh, allowed to claim uh, goes in reverse. T- the political power is in a sense taken from us. Hmm. Um, and yeah. this is one of the things that we most need to remember. Uh, the only thing essential or um for sure in America is that Asian Americans are racialized as Asian Americans. Beyond that, it's unclear what the term means. So, uh, so I think this is where something that we're doing in 2021 um, to center the lived experience of Asian American Christians is to use ethnography, especially in the Saturday morning um, papers of the conference. Each one is, from someone trained or doing ethnography with theological ends. And the design of that portion of the conference is to really avoid essentializing Asian American identity, to begin inductively from concrete material histories, observation reports, 
oral histories, testimony that ethnography and the social sciences help elucidate. So I'm, I'm quite excited to have um, four fantastic ethnographic theological scholars sharing their research with us. And I know, you know, Melissa, you do oral histories, which is very much in tune with these ethnographic approaches. I think ethnography as a method for centering Asian American Christian faith and practice is really, really important and possibly uh, a paradigm shift for doing Asian American theology. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do we avoid essentializing Asian American identity in our theological conversations about Asian Americans? I think we should be really careful as we think about how ethnography can offer a useful intervention in understanding Asian American religious life. Be really careful of making a clear distinction between what leaders say people should do and what people actually do. Good. In other words, thinking um, about the distinction between prescriptions of Asian American religious life and descriptions of Asian American religious life. And I'm much more interested in descriptions and the tensions that might exist between the prescriptions and the descriptions mm -hmm. of what's going on, if that makes sense at all. Yes. And so um, what, what I think, looking at what people do on the ground, and, and I use archival work and oral history work to do that, um, illuminates that all, all of these boundaries that seem to be impermeable are actually very permeable and fluid and dynamic. So um, I keep thinking about the relationship between, say, Hmong American Christians and Hmong uh, practitioners of Hmong traditional ritual life. Mm -hmm. And the way you would hear about it from, say, Hmong American pastors is that there was a really clear difference between the two. But actually, if you look at what people do in their daily lives, there's a lot of overlap and people mm. straddle those boundaries. And those boundaries maybe are not as uh, useful to, to emphasize as boundaries, as, but more as how people accumulate a variety of beliefs and practices and do what works for them. So there's a very pragmatic approach to all of these beliefs and practices that I think we miss out on if we only think about uh, Christianity and traditional Hmong ways as being mutually exclusive. I know, that's been useful for me. and But I think that applies to all sorts of things. Like I think about my Filipino-American Catholic parents and the things they do and the things the church tells them to do. There's a lot of overlap, but sometimes some differences. I love, I love the productive tensions you've identified. In some of our three-way earlier conversations, one of the areas of converging commitments from all three of us is to think about Asian American identity in a trans-Pacific context, which unsettles the kind of binaries that are native to the U.S. domestic context. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from you, Melissa, is uh, among refugees, their lived experience doesn't presuppose whatever categories of Christian this, non-Christian that, which perhaps white American Christians might assume. So I find that, so ethnographies of these Hmong religious communities begins to problematize some of the categories we bring in and presuppose from a European kind of a white dominant culture perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's really by inhabiting the tensions that you see surprising and often quite powerful new emerging forms of um, 
flourishing, surviving, making do in America, right? So an interesting tension for a lot of my Korean American pastor friends is they came out of first generation churches uh, that said to be Korean American Christian is to do morning prayer, to pray, wake up really early and pray with a bunch of other people. Uh, For the subsequent generation Korean Americans, increasingly issues of social justice uh, and communities and political organizing became significant. And so there was like this fraught negotiation. What does it count to be Korean American? What counts as being Korean American? What counts as being uh, Christian? One way to negotiate that is simply to leave, leave it behind and say, well, I'm not that interested in prayer. I'm interested in social justice. What's much more interesting to me is those who have to inhabit both worlds and then reimagine what prayer looks like in terms of things like social justice Um, or for, say, uh, early generation Korean Americans to reimagine their morning prayer um, to include the the reality of the folks across the street in Los Angeles. Uh, Those are the really interesting and kind of surprising forms that I'm interested in kind of highlighting and and looking at how, how people negotiate these spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Jonathan, you know, you and I, we've spoken before about your, your, your manuscript that's going to get published this fall. I'm really looking forward to it. And you got to remind us of the book title again. I think it's gone through several evolutions with Oxford Press, but you take up a case study ethnographic approach. Um, Tell us more about why ethnography is helpful for doing theology. Yeah, this is largely what I'm going to talk about in uh, my ethnographic uh, presentation. It's a large book, and it has t- it, it involves two case studies, um, each of which could be their own book. They're both really long. One is about uh, the Chinese settlement in Reconstruction era uh, in the Reconstruction era South, uh, what's often called the De- Mississippi Chinese. I refer to them as the Delta Chinese. And how they negotiate life uh, really between a world that is stratified in terms of race, uh, black and white folks, um, which is also, as I argue, uh, should be thought about in terms of the political economics of that reality. Uh, The second one is uh, a kind of ethnographic study of a a modern day or current day uh, Chinese American, Korean American, Vietnamese American, so on and so forth, uh, community in San Francisco, California. and I had to think a lot about what I think ethnography is, because there's a way in which we could the turn the ethnographic turn in religious studies or theology could suggest that, say, first order claims about God, about truth, the world, et cetera, uh, are now kind of um, no longer significant or relevant. Um, I rather want to think about empirical claims as being a kind of implicit theological claims. Yeah. That is pushed far enough, any empirical claim will yield theological truths. Um, they just don't always have to, right? So mm-hmm. there may be anxiety among Christians in the modern world that we always have to, to where the for, first order claims about God um, make them clear and evident. But I think if, if we think that God is uh, the truth of things, uh, the creator of things, and the kind of thing that ho- holds all things together, uh, that I think we can be more relaxed about how God comes out and the details of empirical life. Um, and this this is, is true for uh, the reality of of all the sciences, uh, but certainly in ethnography. So you could tell the story in a way that allows the truth of what we believe God to be to emerge in the way the story comes about, the way the story unfolds, the way the story is told. 
Uh, and so, you know, the first out of the book, there's there's actually very, very little theology. There's a lot about their religious life amongst other Baptists and this kind of thing. Um, but I fully think I'm working as a theologian in that mode. I'm telling something about material existence. Uh, and insofar as I think material existence always bears witness to God um, at some point pushed far enough, um, then I think I'm telling theological stories, right? To tell the story of the world is to tell the story of God. And I know in your case study with the San Francisco Christians and church, the issue of race and politics and issues of justice are of central concern. How is that case study relevant in light of this pandemic year where anti-Asian hate and violence has increased? We are now living post-Atlanta again, which, which has really shocked the Asian American community and uh, forced a re-examination of the race discourse in our country beyond a white-black binary. Help us connect some of the, the case study investigation with the San Francisco community to some of these broader race questions. And then I, I also want to pivot to Melissa's research that she'll be presenting on, on Friday morning with respect to anti-Asian racism during COVID. Well, we want to remember that race... Um it's not about diversity. It's about stratification, right? It's not about diversification. It's about stratification. Race was created as an ideological tool to justify modes of exploitation and domination. It facilitated, as is really obvious throughout American history, you cannot tell the story of America without the story of chattel slavery and its afterlife effects in everyday realities now. But it also sequesters us to a certain mode of thinking that will then reduce Asian Americans to a racial category and will give certain substance to that racial category, that is uh, white and black. That's why I think it's been so terribly difficult for, for all of our lives, right, all three of us, for the racism that we've all individually and then collectively experienced to be seen or taken seriously. Because race, again, is structured according to the binary. The substance of that is white and black. So if I were to say I experienced racism, for a lot of people, they can't even imagine what that means mm. exactly. Mm. Um, and so you refer to the the terrible um, events in Atlanta. You know, the news media is going back, and, and, and Melissa can say a lot more about this, but the, the news media is going back and forth. Is this a race thing, right? right. It's not clear to us. It's a race thing, even though... Certain people were clearly targeted. Certain businesses were clearly targeted. And yet we're still wrestling. Is this a race thing? As if people are asking, can this really be about racism because it's about Asian Americans? That that seems to be the, the calculus, kind of, the kind of confused calculus going on. Um, the church in San Francisco, right, this is their entire story. Now, they haven't experienced that horrific violence, right, that took place in Atlanta. But they do live in a part of the city that has been um, quite um, focused on in the recent news because a number of the really highly visible um, um, uh, acts of violence against Asian Americans took place in the south and southwest of San Francisco. And that's where Redeemer Community Church is located. And so one of the questions they've often had is, is the way we talk about race in terms of white and black folks, does it make sense of where they live? Yeah. which has a large growing presence of 
uh, migrant Chinese families. They don't fit. They experience racism on a regular basis. Uh, they fall outside the they're at the margins of resources in terms of the political economics. But again, their visibility because of the way race is imagined is is not often seen. Hmm. Hmm. Melissa, you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I think this is all very interesting. What what Jonathan said, and I, I think one thing that um, I found interesting about the past year is how. Asian American experiences of racism are suddenly visible to people. Yeah. And it's always existed. Uh, I know this as a person who is committed to teaching Asian American history and calling attention to how the relationship of Asian Americans to the issue of racism is not a new phenomenon that Asian Americans have experienced racism for, for a long time and violence for a long time. But what has seemed interesting to me is in the past year how how both Asian American people and non-Asian American people in certain seem to be talking about this as if it's a new phenomenon and I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Like what why is this a new idea for some people? Hmm. And various people we know have had an experience where someone says, So I've never really thought about Asian Americans experiencing racism. Tell me about this, to which I'm always very Stunned. I don't really know how to respond because I say to them, you know what I've been doing for the past 15 years and what I've been researching. How is this a new topic for you? So I guess one question I'm really grappling with is why are we only having this conversation now? Like, why is this a new topic for people? And I don't understand that. And I can point to some reasons why Uh, the degree to which we engage in Asian American history when we teach American history. I have always said that Asian American history is American history, but I don't think that that's how it's actually taught in K through 12 schools and in most universities. And the ongoing struggle for there to be people teaching Asian American history uh, in the university at the university level is, I think, a good illustration of the fact that Asian American experiences continue to be not well understood, rendered invisible, what have you. So I would say one way that I find uh, the issue of Asian American racism during COVID to be playing out in a way that is, to me, very interesting is the topic of visibility and invisibility and the ways in which Asian Americans resisting racism is about um, making a claim not just to inclusion and fair treatment, but simply being seen. And I think that is a kind of distinctive experience among groups that are considered racial minorities in the United States and groups that experience racism. And I don't, um, I, I, I think then it, it raises sort of interesting questions uh, for how to respond to an act of um, racialized violence and misogynistic violence, like what happened in Atlanta. So in the wake of the killings in Atlanta, there are, are really interesting conversations about how we honor the people who died. And there is a push to say their names. That is uh, an effort made by Black people to, you know, emphasize the dignity and humanity of Black people who have been killed. But there have been conversations among Asian Americans that the families of the people who were killed don't necessarily want their names to be named. And it's a reminder that the 
you, you might have Asian American people and black people experiencing racism, but the ways they experience it are specific and the ways that they want to redress that experience of racism is also specific. Um, but I think all of this is kind of a moot point if people don't see Asian Americans as experiencing racism in the first place. Right. <laughs> and so right. anyway, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, and, and at least I am, I'm just frankly not sure what to do with it. Hmm. Right. Same. Because on the one hand, uh, it, I think we have gen, genuinely moved the needle in American race conversations. I don't think going forward, it's going to be easy for people to pose that question again. That is, what Asian Americans experience racism? I think that something has happened, that maybe the needle has shifted just a tad. I think a lot of us are waiting around to see how long that will go for and how much it's shifted. Hmm. But here's the other thing. Um, as I mentioned to you guys in other kind of offline conversations, I've had these experiences in in Central Texas, um, which you know, growing up in Southern California, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> the 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 heart of Texas acronym H O T, entirely appropriate. Uh, but in Central <laughs> Texas, I had this experience where my friends, and I think they're asking this in in good faith, they're so surprised to see all this violence against Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, they're in, they, they, feel it's, they feel a little incredulous, like they're not sure whether to believe it. And so when they ask me, who has always experienced, um, when I was growing up, quite explicit and quite regular racism, um, I'm not sure what to do with their question, right? Um, and you're never quite sure what's happening in these kinds of moments. I think it goes back, the way I think about this complexity is what, Melissa said about, you know, being careful about Asian American identities. Look, we do with it what we need to. Uh, yeah. We figure out politically as much as we can what's happening. It's yeah. it's a simultaneous need to recognize that that's happening, but that doesn't have to be all that's happening. Um, and it's this kind of negotiating these spaces that is, I think, is a con that th I think that's in a sense what we are taught to be as a racialized person in right. America. Right is to try to figure out this negotiation constantly. I'm picking up the theme of invisibility and visibility, especially in the last year and in really the last few weeks with the Atlanta murders. And I'm picking up Jonathan's theme of the pragmatic function of Asian American identity. Asian American identity does something, uh, hopefully does something good, something just, 